Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. My guest today is Mark Reed. And I do have to say how I found you was, uh, I don't even know which, which page it was on where somebody commented and you said, why are there no, was it Bluebells Forever? Why are there no interviews with male dancers? And I'm like, well, there have been several, but since you brought it up, I will ask you to do this because you posted and some other men were uh, commenting about the backstage stories. I'm like, yes, these are the stories that we want to hear. Not just the stage stories, but we love the backstage stories. And then when I looked on your bio, uh, your career is amazing and how much, uh, how many shows you've done and what you've done after. But I always love to go back to like how you started and where you grew up, because it's always a really great frame around like, how is someone dancing in Paris coming from where they came from? So Mark, welcome. And can you just, you know, a little say hello and then tell us where you grew up and you're in Paris right now, but that is not, not where you started. Hello, hello, everybody. And um, I can't, I think it's funny that we listen to podcasts when there's no visual because I'm seeing Sherry here, but you don't see me anyway. Be patient because it is a funny story. Even though it's my story, um, I laugh sometimes uh, every time I tell it because um, I'm a farm boy, a cowboy, born and raised on a wheat farm in the Red River Valley in North Dakota. And I think most of you don't even know anybody from North Dakota. And uh, if you've seen the film Fargo from the, the Coen brothers, you laugh and you're like, oh my God, that's the film. That's really how it is because we're all Norwegians. We came over a uh, hundred years ago and they say, yeah, 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 you betcha. And we eat lutefisk. And, and um, I remember my mother seeing the show and she was like, Dave, we don't talk like that. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing with your mom. So. <laughs> that kind of gives you an idea of, of what we grew up in. And beautiful summers, uh, but winters were like minus 23. I mean, with wind chill, people who, you know, whose car got stuck on the highway, if they started walking, seriously, you would find them in the spring, frozen to death, you know. So it was wow. a rude, rude, rude winter. Um, that said, um, I think I told you when we were warming up here, I always wanted to be a city kid. I wanted to hang out at the bowling alley. (laughs) I love that that's considered city, but that doesn't make (laughs) sense. Well, no, wait a minute. So let's situate. Our city was um, 10 miles away, and I think there was like 600 people in it. So this is this is rural North Dakota. Wow. Our farm was in the middle of nowhere. And the, the largest agglomeration, the largest city was 10 miles away. So we rode the, the yellow school bus every day to school. Um, we're five children. I have four sisters and me. Um, and yeah, I wanted to hang out at the bowling alley because we were looked down upon. We were the farm kids, you know, we had we had shit on our boots and, you know, we smelled maybe of cow milk, which wasn't true. But, um, and now when I talk to my sisters, I mean, we just love the fact that we have the childhood that we have and we see the people that were hanging out at the bowling alley and there, <laughs> some of them are not a good place, you know. Oh my gosh. So but, dance, uh, you probably weren't going off to the ballet studio no, where you grew up. There was no ballet school. There was no dance school. There was no, we, the boys learned how to weld. 
and how to fix motors and how to woodwork and the girls learn how to sew and to cook and become good wives. I mean, so cliche um, and Lutheran Protestant, church school, Sunday school, catechism, lighting the candles. I mean, that whole strict Protestant upbringing, which I think, again, we talked about this earlier, that's what's missing with some of these young kids that are going astray and think the world owes them a living is they did not have that upbringing that we did mm. and give us the moral values that we did. Anyway, that's another conversation. Yeah. And good hard work so, ethic. Exactly. I mean, we had um, we had cows, we had chickens, we had animals, we had a huge garden. The girls had to do the laundry, the housework, the vacuuming, they babysat. There was never a time when you could say, oh, I don't want to do that. Your dad said basically jump and you said, well, how I, you know, it was that respect. And maybe you grunged a little bit and complained a little bit, but there was no way you would ever talk against him or, you know, not do his will. Anyway, I wanted to talk about the winters because the winters are really cold. Six months of winter, so it can start snowing in October and sometimes there's snow until May. Um, and I'm oh. talking minus 23 with a wind chill. Um, and so, you know, yeah, we went outside and yeah, we sledded and made snowmen and that sort of thing. But we also played a lot inside. And, you know, the society game is a lot of monopoly, a lot of cards. And dad was a polka champion, a really good polka champion. And so he would teach us how to do polka and we learned how to do rock and roll, swing and waltz. Um, and you can allow, we had barn dances. I mean, really the barn dances that you see in, I'm thinking Little House on the Prairie, where, um, you know, you would put the cows and the horses in the pasture and clean it up the best that you could. And, and we didn't have um, a disc We had a live orchestra with a fiddler and, you know, we danced in the barn and just had the best time. Was anyway, it just your so, family or was it other people around that joined oh, you? Oh, the whole community. No, oh, community. These were community events. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, love we, that. Often organized by the church. And then we do potluck. Do you know, do people know what mm, potluck Oh, yes. Is? I'm a 70s girl. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Norwegian, we call it a smorgasbord. Yeah. Smorgasbord has been everybody... Um, and it was just a good time, a, a, a good, good time. And um, and so that was kind of what gave us all the fever of dancing. And I knew I didn't want to stay in the farm and be a farmer because I just knew I didn't. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a doctor because I was a pretty good student. And um, I thought doctor's good, I can have prestige, my dad will be happy. So I go off to med, med school in um, Grand Forks, North Dakota, which is, the second largest city, which is again, only 30,000 people. You know, I think there's more people in LA than in the whole state of North Dakota. I mean, there's not even a million, uh, we'll look it up. And so I got into med school and I worked hard. And then one year, a cast of Up With People came to the auditorium, the Chester Fritz Auditorium. And I went to see them and oh my Lord, they were dancing and they were singing and they were young and they were just swirling around. And after each show, they would interview people if you wanted to travel with them the next year. So I was like, yeah. And uh, I remember this guy interviewed me and then you cross your fingers. They don't tell you then that you're hired, that you're hired or not. So when I got the confirmation that I was to travel, this was 1975. So 
the bicentennial of America, the 200 years of America, mm. 1976. So they're doing a huge cast. I think we were like 400 or 500 people split into three casts that traveled basically all over the world because they wanted to get the message of Up With People out to the world. And I said this before, it wasn't religious, it wasn't political, it was just up, up with people, you meet them wherever you go. It was just a good positive kind of message that maybe we need again today. Did and they we make you like, audition? Did they have you sing or dance or just interview you to see what kind of person you were or was there yeah, anything they expected? They did not. It was just a personality interview. And then I guess they got what they get. We, we trained in Tucson, Arizona and then they would, you know, some people were never dancers. They put them in singing. Some people who couldn't dance or sing, then they were like stage hands kind of thing. So if they liked your personality and you emulated the spirit of up with people, that hired you. And then when you got down to Tucson, they put you in the place that you were supposed to go. But I mean, we played all the major, um, major venues, um, Akron, Cleveland, Ohio, big stadiums. Um, I think we even did Madison Square Garden, the Super Bowl halftime entertainment at the oh Super Bowl. Beyonce, you know, but we also did, you know, retirement homes and public schools and 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 handicapped children's hospitals and stuff. So it was really reaching out to the community and say, "Hey, up with people." So that's not do... a year. And I... Say it again. Oh, that was a year. Was, was, like, was that a bus and? Were you guys doing buses and where were they putting you up? Because like, if you've come from a farm, this has got to be like the whole world has opened up to you and you're seeing oh, so much it. and meeting people. And We effectively we traveled by bus. We stayed with host families. So there would be a public relations committee that would go into the city about a month before and set up publicity, find host families. So we stayed with the families. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was not so good. Yeah, <laughs> it's a risk. Uh, these rickety people picked me up in this rickety car and we drove up into the Ozarks and I'm like, oh, oh. my God. <laughs> I may go. not come back. I may not come back. But <laughs> in the end also, that just added to the experience of it all. Wow. Um, so I basically saw every single, we, I think we travel all 50 states. And of course, then you see the museums and everybody wants to take you out and see the cultural part of it. So I get back to North Dakota and was going to try to be a doctor again. And I was like, once you've seen, you know, this is the farm, how are you going to keep um, down on the farm? <laughs> I just, I saw what was out there and that I could sing and I could dance and I was uh, respected and appreciated for us. And I'm like, wow, this is good. So I had a, um, uh, a university counselor was a, a big mentor for me and helped me a lot that said, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't think I want to be a doctor. I don't necessarily like sick people or blood or, you know, I don't want to work in a hospital. I, I want to sing and dance, but I'm worried about what my dad's going to say. And he goes, well, try it for a semester. And so I did, and of course loved it. And the Mecca, the, the cultural Mecca in the Midwest is Chicago and or Minneapolis. Chicago is maybe a bit bigger, but Minneapolis was, they have theater, they have children's, they have dance, they have an opera, they have a ballet. So I moved to Minneapolis, continued my studies a little bit and answered an ad in the newspaper for a part-time ballroom instructor at Arthur Murray Dance Studios. I thought, oh, that could be fun. And I knew how to polka and, to, and swing and waltz. 
and you know Arthur Murray taught me in a hurry and well that was just the um the sock that fit my foot um I loved it um they loved me and it was a prime time what this would have been 1977 1978 so it was full-on dirty dancing Patrick Swayze uh um, John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever, all the line dances. I mean, everybody was dancing. Yeah. And we had a great team, um, great girls, great guys. Um, I became the manager of the studio. I managed that for five years and we were the stars. We would go, we would travel, we would go to conferences and when we would, the, the Minneapolis team walked in, they would applaud us because we were good. Um, and that was the best time. It was, we got up at nine o'clock in the morning. So we had a professional dance rehearsal before we worked and then had lunch, took a shower. Then we had a ballroom dance workshop, a sales workshop, because we're extremely uh, briefed in how to sell. Then we would teach class until 10 o'clock at night. And then at 10 o'clock at night, we would go into the nightclubs and do, you know, Saturday night fever shows. Oh my god! We were young then. Yeah. Um, so it was wonderful. So that was five years, uh, some of the best years of my life. Although, how can you say that? But it was really good. Uh, Minneapolis is a great city. Um, it was just fun. And I had good people around me and I learned so much. And that went bad because the boss liked to bring in young blonde women and they were his lovers and he wanted to make them Dance teachers. Well, they didn't want to be dance teachers. They just wanted to be his lover. So he would make us train them as dance teachers. And then that would be okay until he brought the next one in. And I would say, you don't fuck where you eat, you know? Right. When it was good, it was good. But when he brings the, the replacement in, it was weird for everybody. Um, oh. And he's a brilliant man, a mentor. He taught me so much. I'm not, uh, I don't take that away, but he ended up not paying us and blah, 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 blah. I went, uh, I took him to, um, to court and I said, I can't do this. I have to leave. And I was a golden boy in the company enough so that they offered me the opportunity to manage another school in none other than Las Vegas. Hmm. I packed up the U-Haul with my first teacher, Maureen, and we drove down to Las Vegas. People thought we were crazy and um, managed the school there for a while, but then started seeing the strip and all these shows and started going to the shows. And I was like, this looks fun. And I was kind of tired of dancing with the old ladies. I mean, that's not judgmental, but that's kind of what we did. And so I auditioned for the show at the Flamingo Hilton, which was called City Life at the time. And you had to tap, and I had taken lots of dance classes in Minnesota, not only ballroom, but tap, classic jazz, that sort of thing. So I could tap, I could dance, but you had to skate because it was one of those shows with the skating tank in. Well, what year was that? Was that late 70s? I'm sorry? When, what, what year was that? Do you remember when that was? 1980? 80, okay. 1982? Yeah, because I, I lived there for a few months. I remember seeing shows down there. Now it's kind of a blur. And then I went to Reno, but it's just, there were so many, so many shows at so many of the hotels. But I remember ice shows being in a few of them. Like, that's an so interesting uh, combination. The Hacienda had an ice show. The Hacienda okay. show was all ice skating and they were good. 
and they went on to do ice follies and ice capes and that sort of thing. We were uh, a Tsitsinas feather show with a lead singer, a male singer, a female singer, and then the tank would uncover and we had the world champion ice skaters that, that would do their adagio show. So I, I, I think, yeah. I don't know, I know the Flamingo's still there, one of the only ones that is. Anyway, so the only, uh, the only ice skating I'd done was on, you know, hockey skates that we bought at an auction sale on the sloughs in North Dakota. <laughs> but somehow they hired me. Um, and that was, whoa, so fun, so fun, so fun. And with the feathers and the girls were nice and the guys were nice. And the only downside is what we had to bloody skate. And I was so <laughs> bad. I was so bad. Sometimes we had a pole or a banner, we just had to skate around in a circle. But at one point, the girls were on one side and we were on the other side and we had to skate to the middle, waltz with them and then skate back. Nobody wanted to skate with me because I was so bad. I, you know, I oh my gosh, I'm just picturing the disasters, like putting anyone on ice, but then to do this in front of a public that's paying for glamour. I was in the back. I was in the okay. back, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. Revert so, to um, up with people singing. And we talked about animals. We had a tiger. I don't know why we had a tiger. On ice? Maybe we had a magic animal with a tiger. And he was stuck on a cage. And it was just Flamingo Hill is not a big stage, not like what you did at um, MGM or Reno or um, even Caesar's Palace. I mean, those backstages must be huge. It was pretty small and compact. And this tiger was there waiting to go and do his act. Well, it's the whole cliche of the showgirls, the topless girls were beautiful with pretty breasts and they had those huge sequin skirts on and they didn't know how to skate. They were hired for their boobs and for their beauty. So literally, you know, they would pose, we'd push them on one side and they would kind of skate across <laughs> and smile and then um, come off on the other side. And I remember this one girl, I think her name was Kathy. Well, she stumbled off the other side and got too close to the tiger cage. Well, tigers like glitter. So he reached out his paw and grabbed her glitter um, skirt and it could have been serious. I mean, the trainer was there and he, you know, but she was never the same, <laughs> the poor girl. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we were talking cool. earlier about these stories that seem normal to us. I'm actually laughing like how this is so funny and ridiculous, but it seems normal when you're in it. And then listening to it now, I'm like, you're putting topless girls on ice, even that, like I've seen a couple of topless shows and when they, on ice, when they spin, their boobs are usually like one revolution behind them and it's cold. I'm like, who thought that was a good idea? And I, but there's things that this is so, it's so glamorous and beautiful and it's so absurd of the life that we lived and there's tigers backstage and there's just, it's so good. So keep going because I, I'm I thoroughly in, enjoying how bizarre life, our life was. <laughs> and you know, when you're out there, anything can happen backstage, but then when you go out there, it's just all this perfect, all this tra-la-la and you're beautiful and you're clean and you're happy. But then you got to go. And I mean, we had, you know, about changes. We sometimes had like 30 seconds a minute to change the whole thing. So that was City Lights at the Flamingo Hilton. And I think I did that for two years. Um, and there was a Lido in Paris at that time at the Stardust Hotel, which was a beautiful art yeah. deco sign. That was in the sign museum, I think. And that was like the show with um, Jubilee. 
at uh, the MGM. Those are the two big ones. I mean, we're talking what they were like 60, 70, 80, 100 people on stage. Mm -hmm. I think it was 100 MGMs. How many? I think it was 100 at MGM. Hello Hollywood was 150, but I think that Jubilee was the next, and those were like, yeah, it's crazy. It was the size of a football field. And that's, I always think pe- people think I'm exaggerating, but it really was that big. No, you're right. And it's still, you could have probably sh- put another few hundred on there and been fine. And so that was kind of the thing to do. It was the next step up on my, <laughs> on my notch. And so I auditioned and they hired me. And um, that was Coco Rico, for those of you who go back, Coco mm. Rico. Um or maybe, no, it was Ale Lido, Ale Lido, which was Don Arden. I don't know, did he mm. do your show as well? Yes, yes, yes. You know, Don Arden and, and Falco and the costumes came from Paris. And it was, again, I'm an old fart now, but when I see these new shows, they don't hold a candle to the class, the beauty. The music was Cole Porter and Gershwin. The girls had real white fox for stoles and Swarovski's crystals and and sequins. Um, you know, we had white capes lined with purple satin. Uh, we had a volcano, we had waterfalls. The whole machinery that happened uh, backstage, it was just pretty amazing to take people on this tour that is a totally imaginary land. Um, Were you taking dance? Great- oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to- I'm sorry, were you taking dance lessons or like getting ready to do more? Or was it things like that looks good, I'll audition? Or were you, okay, I'm going to really go for this? Or did you have enough with your Arthur Murray and your barn dance to get you there? While we're dancing, we used to do two shows a night. Um, So we would have to be there at seven. We'd do a first show and then we'd have a break and then we'd do a second show. Uh, And then, of course, you'd be hungry, so you'd go out to eat and then maybe you'd go out to the bar. So a lot of times we didn't get home till six or seven in the morning and then you wanted to get a suntan so we'd go laid by the pool um and then you would take maybe a ballet class or a jazz class in the afternoon and do it all again yeah so yeah you have to keep it up but just working in the shows also keeps you up to a level where you, it's it's your metier it's your body you don't slack off yeah uh, the things about uh, funny things about the lido we talked about this earlier and the dangers um you know, you say there's safety restrictions now that would never happen. And, you know, we just never, this is what you had to do. This is what you had to do. There was um, the show opened with the beautiful girl, Barbara Beverly. If you're out there, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever met. Um, With this huge, we call it a toilet seat, this huge round thing, all in white fox fur. And then out of the ceiling would come these little round platforms, only big enough for a girl to stand on them with three cables and I don't remember that they were attached. You say they might've had an attachment in the backpack, but I don't even think they had a backpack. They just had a G-string and they were topless. Oh, anyway, wow. so they would come down, they would get off these little platforms, they would kick and dance and, you know, beautiful. Um, the old fashioned little huge long eyelashes, they all had the hair pulled back. And then those big ponytails, what's the girl that came out of the genie? I dream of genie. Oh, Barbara Feldon. But I can't Barbara, remember her Barbara Barbara, Barbara Eden. Eden. Barbara Eden. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah that thing with the long ponytail. So what, so when they danced, the ponytail would move. They all had that. Oh. You know, so this was early 80s. So that was the look. And they would get back on their little platform and get pulled up into the ceiling 
I never really never knew how they could get from the ceiling back on stage again. Anyway, they did. <laughs> and uh, do you have a question? <laughs> no. I, well, I do have a question that eventually I was going to get to. Like, are people back home in North Dakota wondering what the heck you're doing, or do they have any idea? Did they see the show, or like, okay, he's probably not going to be a farmer or a doctor? Are we kind of think he's. My, my, my mom and dad were very supportive. Of course, my father would have liked me to stay on the farm because I was the only son, but he never said anything. And he did come to uh, Las Vegas, and one time, the the lead singer of the show at the Flamingo Hilton had a nervous breakdown. So I just, I was his understudy. So I had to stand up. So I was singing in the show and he came and saw me and, you know, he was proud, you know, his mm -hmm. farm boy son singing on a microphone surrounded by naked ladies. <laughs> you did well, son. Yeah. But they, you know, it's such a totally different lifestyle that I don't think most of them know, which is interesting with Facebook now because I do send some photos. But uh, back to the Lido then, and we had animals. They had a magic axe. I think it was Siegfried and Roy at the time that was at the Lido. And then they moved on and you know did a huge thing at their own hotel. Um, and we had an African number where we, it was led by an elephant, a real elephant. And the, the, the lead girl would go on the elephant and the lead boy would lead her around. There was a passerelle that came out into the audience, which that was really cool. So the audience was like, you were actually dancing around them. I think they paid more for those seats. And so this elephant came around and then we were all the African people with voodoo masks and ooh, ooh, ooh kind of thing. And then the elephant would go off stage and then we would have to do the African dance number, which was African moves. And invariably one show out of two, of course, what do elephants do is they poop. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen elephant poop, but it's big stuff. And he would always poop in the center stage in the back, which is where I had to dance with Shirley. <laughs> uh, so, good thing you're a farm like, boy. Okay. So you had to do the number and not look too obvious, but you had to make sure that you didn't step in the elephant shit. Um, crazy. <laughs> Such a glamorous life. We had uh, nine, you know? nine white horses in Hello Hollywood. And out of nine horses, I think it was like one out of every two shows, there'd be horse poop. And the song that's playing is the most the, the most beautiful girl in the world. And you had to kind of lift up if you had a cape to not drag it through the horse poop. And there, yeah, it's the things that are absurd of how glamorous, but you add animals, there's always poop stories. Like, are they not thinking well, that they're gonna poop? That's what animals do. That's what yeah. animals do. Um, <laughs> and I don't know where the elephants stayed. I never, I mean, they had, I mean, I don't think he stayed in the parking lot. I think he went out every day and they kept him on a farm, but um so that was the Lido, and that was a short time. And somehow in my crazy mindset, I dreamed about being in Paris, although I'm Norwegian and German ancestry. So where does that come from? Who even knows? And Madame Bluebell, did she do your casting as well? Mm -hmm. My addition for Miss Bluebell. Yeah, it's an honor. Oh, oh <laughs> dude, that's, that's that, what a grand lady. So twice a year, Madame Bluebell would come to Las Vegas and audition girls and boys because at that time we were taller and we were better dancers. And I knew she was coming. And so I was taking voice lessons and you know I worked out a little number and shook my hooter and I guess was you know good enough for her. So she hired me for the new show, Panache, 
that was going to happen in six months. So I was thrilled. Then um, two weeks later, she called me and she goes, I have a problem. One of my boys here in Paris bunked. He just didn't come into work and we need a boy now. Would you ever be okay to be here in two weeks? And I didn't hesitate one bit. I said, yes, of course. So I gave my notice at the Lido in Vegas. I sold all of my stuff. I did fly home to North Dakota to tell my parents and my family goodbye. And it all happened so fast. It wasn't until I was on the plane that I was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, I didn't speak any French. I knew Keller Till and Ueli Latobus Polishans Elise. Um, and I was supposed to stay with two boys that I did know from Vegas that were dancing in Paris. Um, and so you get there and I don't know if you've ever started a show that's already been going or did you? Mm -hmm. I came in as a replacement. Yeah, it's very, it's a very different experience. I mean, it's like heavy duty intense. And I think they basically gave me a week to learn everything. And then you have one rehearsal and you got to fit into that slot. Because as you know, there's a line of boys and that's your number. And then you're out there on your own. And um, whoa, that was hard. That was hard. You do it again. You don't complain because you're in Paris and you're dancing at the Lido de Paris. You know? <laughs> right. What uh, show was, was was that? Were you there for the end of before Panache? Were you at the end of the show previous? That that was the end of Coco Rico. That was the last six months of Coco Rico. And Coco Rico, we talked about earlier. Um, you know, very kitsch. Uh, they you talked about not um, finding. A lot of colored people just wasn't any. And the colored person that was in our show, he was the African tribe leader and he sacrificed the princess and murdered her on a thing. So a little bit cliche. A little yeah. bit cliche. Was the Coco Rico in Vegas and Paris? Or they the, I know there was one in Paris. Was was the Coco Rico show in Las Vegas also? Do they, the do they... they we talked about the one that I talked about in Vegas was called Ali Lido. Okay, so it wasn't, but I think at some point, because what they did is they would, when they did a new show in Paris, they would send the costumes to Las Vegas. So there was some okay. of the numbers that were in both. Okay, because I think I've seen pictures and confused, like, or even when people say Lido de Paris, you have to say, was that Paris or Vegas? Because yeah. I always just yeah. thought of it as the actual theater house, not necessarily the name of the show, or that the Stardust was the house. Ali Dido, I know, was in Paris, because they were always conceived in Paris first. So they had their debut in Paris, and then once I think the costumes got tired, then they said, well, let's send them to Las Vegas and make a new show. I don't know. Oh, interesting. So um, we're doing Coco Rico, um, and there's again an African number, and there's a waterfall, and there's a time when he captures the princess, and um, we put her on a seesaw. So one of the boys had to pull down on the seesaw. She was hanging up above the seesaw, and there was a huge waterfall coming down on the pool, and we had to like, you know, turn her around on this thing, and she would be ah screaming, screaming, screaming. Well, of course. People fought, fell into the water. They fell into the <laughs> pool. Um, you talk about funny things. Um, we also had an ice tank in that show. 
but the ice tank was in the middle, still is in the middle, by the way. And there's three floors underneath the Lido in Paris uh, where they, they stock the decors, the ice tank. And so when that floor opens and the ice tank comes up, you're, there's a drop of three stories down. Well, when the ice tank is coming up, you still have to have people on the stage. So we as the boys, we would walk around this, dance around this passerelle and on one side was the audience and the tables, and on the other side was this three floor drop into the pit. Scary as heck. Yeah. I hated it. I hated it. No safety net, no nothing. As one would, people tended to crowd more to the table side. Well, you could imagine that there was any number of people that would lose their footing and fall onto the tables in the middle of the champagne buckets as well. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get up after you're, you're sprawled on a table and get back on stage and do your number it's, not easy. it's just funny in the creation of these of these like when you know there's water and ice that no one's thinking i wonder if anyone's gonna fall or get hurt because we had a waterfall we had a rain trap people fell in that uh yeah there's just like I, I, that's such a beautiful conception but i don't know how much they think about like Oh, how many dancers are we going to have <laughs> crashed? Yeah, they don't think of that. Well, you know, let's talk about the backstage. You know, as a showgirl, well, you know, the whole preparation is like you do all this beautiful makeup with these beautiful things, but basically what you got in your head is a fishnet stocking. <laughs> and then you have over that. Well, then there's always the story of the girl that is waiting for the curtain to go up and her wig or her headdress gets caught in the curtain and she goes up <gasps> and up and up. And the curtain takes her head right, and so the curtain opens, and then beautiful girl with a fishnet on her head. That never happened to you. I had my, I had a fan piece that we had these beautiful falls with a tiara, and it, I went over my head, and I looked up, and my wig was hanging in my fan, and I realized I had the fishnet, like we call it nipple head. And then I had, you know, there's no way to, there's no way to make that pretty. You have to exit the stage and get your wig back on. But I've, I've never heard that with the headpiece going up, but of course it would. Of course. (laughs) There was uh, two stairs. I mean, the machinery of it all was incredible. When you look back, the unsafety of the machinery, that's another story now that as per our previous conversation, I'm like, wow, they had two rounded staircases that would slide out from the sides. I mean, it was stunning. And so these staircases would just come out of the woodwork and all the way up the staircase were these beautiful girls posing. Well, um, one of them lost her footing and there was, she had this big ball of feathers on her back. So this ball of feathers, she rolled all down, all the way down the staircase as those women because she lost her balance. Well, oh. you know, she broke her neck. But she crawls off and, and you know prints her feathers and comes back on. Then um, we also had a thing that came out of the sky. We had to crawl up into the rafters and walk across this flimsy little platform on cables. And we were doing a drumming number. And then as it came time, then they would drop this platform down as the ice was coming back. So we were one story up and the ice was like three floors. I was like four story drop. And by the time our platform got down to the stage, the ice was gone, the floor was back, and then we danced. Nobody fell off. Certainly we were not harnessed. Anyway. We had a space number in Hello Hollywood Hello, and they had like the whole space astronaut suit that they had cables where they would fly above. There's like spaceships, all kinds of things were going on. So 
on your last week, you, you replacement is doing your part. So you could swing somebody else, just easy parts that you could go in, like kind yeah. of more like prop people. I go, I want to fly. So I wanted to fly like my last week and put that costume on. It's really fun to watch in the wings, but when you're up there and the net, the floor opens to bring this set two stories down, you realize, Oh my gosh. Like I, it, you realize how dangerous it was super fun, but I, I thought I was just above the stage. I didn't realize that when you look down and that hole is there for the next thing, how far up you are, because I don't think it may get hurt, but they did have one time where they were lowering that person down and they were like an inch or two from the floor, but they weren't all the way down and they were kind of just hanging there ready to get other suit. One of the space cars came off to park and they basically had to like spread Eagle to not have their, I mean, there's just those stories of, Things are, yeah. are beautifully, and they work 99% of the time, but when they don't, and you're up there that going, wow, this could, this could go poorly. And the fact yeah. that it doesn't happen more is actually kind of I, miraculous. I don't know any stories of people being killed or severely injured. Um, one guy was hanging on these stairways when they came out, and he cut his finger off, but you know, that's oh. minor. What's <laughs> <laughs> a finger. So, so that, that, that was a six-month kind of replacement thing as this guy bunked and then we at the same time and th this was probably the summit of what i did is we created this new show that was called panache and so again it was don arden he was he's and i didn't know who these people were i didn't know how great these people were until now when i read some of the history and the retrospectives and the program that they put out uh, at the Bluebells reunion last yeah. August, I was like, oh my gosh, these were really, this was big time. And it was Winston and Rick, Rich Rizzo who did the choreography. Mm -hmm. Bob Turk did some as well. And the costumes were Falco. And Falco was an Italian guy. And there is some guy named Christopher Menon who is finding Falco sketches now and putting them up. And I mean, just stunning, like nothing. Oh, I've been seeing you... those. Yeah, I've been oh. seeing his, his post. And it's because we don't know how many of those things are around. And I think with social media, these things that we never, I, I mean, I auditioned for Don on personally. A lot of people were crying and it was, a, it was a terrifying to audition for him. But then not knowing what I was really part of, I didn't really know Bluebell's legacy until later. So that's, I think, some of this stuff now is the gift to go, oh, my gosh, we were part of that. Because I've heard other people say panache, they think is Don Arden's most, his, his best work ever. So you got to be part of that. That's people have different opinions of which show, but that sure. one I know is highly esteemed and one of his best creations. It was just so interesting to see it from zero to opening night um, and the costume fittings and the detail and this Falco guy. I mean, have nothing but laud from him, the ideas. I mean, you would have. The boys are different because let's be honest, nobody comes to the leader to see the boys. And the number of times I've been asked, you at the leader, this boys at the leader? <laughs> you know, they come to see the girls, they come to see the tits and we're accessories. So we're there dancing our butts off when you're changing or we're presenting you or we're on our knees glorifying the woman. That's what we do. Not to say uh, when necessary as well. So we were more often than not dressed the same. But this guy would dress 12 nudes and each nude would have in the same theme, a totally different costume and just stunning feathers. Yeah. And, and so um, good, 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 good experience um, to do that from the beginning. And that ran then for a year. Uh, uh, for me, I'm sorry. 
I think it ran for nine, 10 years, but after a year that had hit the milestone of five years doing cabaret and I was kind of ready to move on to something else. Oh. Because you don't have a life, you know this. I mean, the girls, yeah. none of the girls, they would go out with the people in working in the in the restaurant because they, you know, you would get out at three o'clock in the morning. They couldn't meet a doctor or a lawyer. You just didn't have a life. And if you wanted to keep up your dancing, then you had to have class. Um, so it was the time when a lot of us did what I think in America you call industrials. So during the day mm -hmm. we would do shows that would use dancers a lot of ski shows, a lot of underwear shows, a lot of hair shows. So I started doing that and got enough work so that I knew that I could survive without the Lido and just, it was time to turn the page. Well, I did I see you got some really impressed and you decided to stay in Paris and not well, go back home or did you come and go? That was a quick thing. I fell in love with it probably the instant that I walked on the Champs-Élysées, which of course that's where the Lido yeah. is. You must come one day on the Champs-Élysées and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. I just, I love the oldness. I love the architecture. I love the beauty. I love being in the center of Europe. When it came time to take my vacation, I was like, okay, a week. They're like, no, you don't have a week. You have four weeks. That was, that's the standard vacation in France. Oh, and wow. I was, I didn't know what to do with four weeks of vacation, but let me tell you, you figure, you figure it out. And now when I go on vacation, anything less than two weeks is too short. And that's, you know, Americans could do better that way. To well, just I came, yeah, because a week by the time you actually unpack your bags, you're already, because I did go to the reunion, which was amazing. And every time I say, thank you, Lindsay, for putting that together, because I, had five days in Paris and I, and I wanted to see Paris, but I'm like, yeah, but this is there in Germany. Like all the things that were so close, like, no, you have to, five days was not even nearly enough, but I'm so used to the American way of travel, like two days here, two days there. So I'd been in Paris a couple of years before for two days. So five days, I thought I still barely, barely scraped it. So I, the thought of, of living there and getting to just explore Paris and then all the other places you can just get too quickly I met you're the American in Paris, and I love that it's from a farm to that because the contrast <laughs> yeah. is so wonderful. Did it you was, adapt to that city life? Because Paris, well, Vegas is well, its you own do, culture. Because, because I knew I wanted to stay. So many of the boys were like, knew it was a temporary thing. They're like, oh my God, I don't like Paris. I don't like the French people, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and even when I was going there, people were like, you're going to move to Paris? Oh, how could you do that? And I was like, well, why wouldn't I? You know, and their reasoning, and again, this is, um, the reasoning was that they don't have real toilets. They just have holes in the ground that you poop in. And of course, those are the Turkish toilets. And if you want to go there, they're the most cleanly toilets in the world because you don't touch anything. And the girls don't shave their legs or under their arms. Those are the two things that they told me. <laughs> oh my gosh. What a, that's a very interesting they don't uh, have take on hers. They don't have 7-Elevens either. <laughs> well, Wow, that's a standard. Then you're like, oh, you know, just... and, and part of that first six months was realizing <laughs> that America was not the be all and the end all. And I think we're raised in the States with kind of a propaganda that we're the best. Nobody has a lifestyle like America. And when you get out that and you live in a beautiful culture like the French culture or the Italian culture, 
you know, they have as good a life, sometimes a better quality of life than you do. And they take the piss out of us because, as you said, when we go on vacation, we spend two years, two days here, two days there. We take a picture of everything and then we go home and we look at our pictures. That's not a vacation. You know? mm-mm, mm-mm. So it was a real step back and going, whoa, maybe the center of the world is not the United States of America. Um, How so long have you been there? Have you- 36 years. I came in 1984. Oh, and you, wow. So early enough when I realized, I, I guess I really never thought I would stay forever because you always think it's going to pull back. But the more you stay and the more you work, and I was doing interesting things, fashion shows and choreography and, and TV and, 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 and acting. I started doing acting again and, and then traveling. As you said, you can be in Switzerland, you can be in Amsterdam, you can be in England. And that was before the rapid trades. Now it's even better. I was in the center of the universe of this rich cultural uh, history and architecture, and I just, I just loved it. And I think to this day, I mentioned earlier, there's not a day that I don't go walking. I do try to take a walk every day with the confinement, and I'll see the Eiffel Tower or I'll see uh, the Pont Alexandre III, and I pinch myself and I'm like, oh my God, this is where you live. I never ever get tired of the beauty. Oh, so and people start to get jaded. It's like, or people move because they haven't really adapted or taken in where they are. You know, they're still comparing it to what they think it's supposed to be or where they used to go instead of like, this is what a gift to be living there. Do you have to have a visa to a work well, visa? Like that was another wonderful thing is the leader took care of all my paperwork. So I mean, you walk into the 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 police station or the mayor's mayor's office. And I walked in front of about a hundred people with Madame Bluebell. I mean, she was good to me. She she took me under her wings and you know invited me over for lunch. She was good. Um, and so I walked in front of a hundred people and walked out with my paper. So they took care of that at the beginning, and then once you're in the system, you can keep going. You see. Really? Okay. Um, so, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I really thought I was going to stay forever, but I knew I liked it a lot, um, and was traveling, uh, made some friends learn how to speak French. I find it a little bit disheartening that so many Americans live here and they feel like they are superior people and they've been here for five, 10 years and they still can't speak French. Mm. Uh, Part of living in a country, whatever country is, is if you're going to integrate into the country, well, then you learn the native language. Um, Nobody's going to criticize you. It's just what you do. And I never, unfortunately, took lessons, but I did learn on the street. And now I speak, of course, fluent French. And it just opens up a whole, a whole life when you, even if all you know how to say when you come here is, I'm sorry, I don't speak French. Do you speak English? And apologize for you not speaking French. Instead of, I've seen mm-hmm. Americans, do you speak English? And then, oh the my gosh. <laughs> and so they'll cry louder, do you speak English? Um, <laughs> And I've become some shameful Americans. Anyway. Yeah. So well, then b- um, backstage, like you're also at such an international cast. So I feel like, like even when I, I can hear you're Amer- you're totally sound like an American to me now, but when we first got on, I'm like, well, that's not French. But how you adapt to the accent, but also being backstage international. I know like I would say things that kind of had an Aussie vibe to it or like, or I'd come back and people would say like, you don't sound, where have you been? But you kind of totally. acquire the country, but also like the backstage uh, sayings and cliches and all the, or the, you learn the dirty words in all the country, of course, all the languages I think you get. To. 
75 people on stage for Panache, 70 plus, and at, there was only one French girl at that time. I think there's more French people now. Um, and the international language backstage was English. Everybody had to speak English, even the dressers, the tech people, the lighting, the orchestra people, everybody had to speak English because that was the way that we communicated. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so your fear um, of not speaking the language, that never really made well, anything difficult. But I knew that I was seriously thinking about staying. So I, I, I read and I looked <clears throat> and I listened. Um, I, I worked with a guy who had been there for two years and he was he said, what does Kamsa mean? And Kamsa is easy, it's like that. And after two years, because he would only go out with the English girls and speak English. And you can. You know, so there would be Americans in Paris, but they would stay in that cocoon of being Americans, and mm. I did. kind of a waste, a wasted experience. Kind of a waste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> so life goes on, and I loved it, and I found a beautiful little studio apartment, and I have um, a three hundred square foot garden. I live on the ground floor. Oh, wonderful! So that's a wonderful thing too. As a farm boy, you know, I got to get in there and you know do some gardening. So in the 35 years that I've lived here, I've never moved. Um, the garden is wonderful. I was out there working today. And what else to tell you? About 10 years ago, I was missing ballroom dancing. And I was missing not so much performing because I think I've done my time performing and I mm -hmm. don't need to be off stage anymore. But um, I was missing, missing the happiness that you give people when you teach them how to dance together. And so I started thinking about maybe giving lessons. I didn't want the responsibility of a school because it's just too huge. And so I thought about private lessons in people's homes. I have no um, constraints, so I could go wherever they want me to go. And I thought, are they going to let somebody in? And in fact, that's blossomed into that's my main source of revenue now. I give ballroom dance lessons in people's home, only private lessons. Um, I do a lot, a lot of weddings, so a lot of waltzes, you know. So yeah. I basically teach people and love how to dance together, uh, which is just wonderful. And then I have maybe a handful of clients that take lessons all year round because it makes them happy and it's couples therapy. And especially now mm. at the time of the confinement and the COVID, dancing is a little ray of sunshine in this dark and somber world. Oh my gosh. It's, wait, that's beautiful. It's still part of your life. Do you, did you feel like this is, was there any grief about being done or like you just kind of did your time and it was time to move on or there was no like, oh, I kind of want to do both. It was kind of a passage. It was time and I had other projects. I feel sad about people that hang on and they maybe don't look so good anymore, but they can't stop because they don't know what else to do. Um, I also did a lot of work in fashion. That was an interesting thing. A friend of mine was a commercial director for Christian Lacroix, and they hire salespeople to sell the collection to the store buyers. So the store buyers come to Paris for Fashion Week, and they hire us as extras. They brief us on the collection, what's a good piece here, what's a good piece there. And um, because of my Arthur Murray training, I was a pretty good salesman and uh, worked for most of the major houses. I've been doing that also for 20 years. That's kind of another hat that I wear. Um, Thierry Mugler, Christian Lacroix, Lanvin, Christian Dior, Chanel, 
a lot, a lot of time with Hermes. And so um, you help people buy. So you tell Dallas that maybe she should have this and you tell Tokyo that she should have this. Oh, so that was wow. because you get to work with the whole world. And, and that's all kind of coming to an end. And I've just applied for retirement um, in November. So they're getting all the paperwork together. And so I'm kind of pulling back from acting and fashion work, still doing dancing lessons, but I'm just enjoying life, gardening. I wish mm -hmm. I'd go out theater and cinema, but that's going to happen. And yeah. um, I just love kind of love my pretty much love my life there you go oh it's so good because oh, that transition is interesting to hear where people either chose it or not but some people you know it was a short time in their life to be a bluebell dancer bluebell boy um but some people did it for a long time and everybody had a different path but it is interesting to see like if it was a choice or not a choice to, to be done and do something else I think if you get injured, maybe if you the prime time and you you know break a knee or you're injured, you cannot dance. That must be more severe and more hard to deal with. Um, I think that yeah, I think mm -hmm. that it's a, it's a natural evolution when you realize that that's enough because it's such a demanding job. And I go back and say again, you don't have a real life. You don't. You're so out of touch with real life because you live in this fantasy world of costumes and elephants and feathers and, and, <laughs> and, and, and bijou. Um, and you know, the rest of the world goes to work at nine o'clock and comes out at, 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 at six. So maybe that's part of it too, is just realizing that, you know, and I'm still nocturnal. I mean, my, my natural clock is still, I don't really go to bed till two o'clock in the morning and I don't, don't talk to me before 10. So that right. stays. <laughs> yeah, that, oh, I did that life for so long and then I would teach teach dance, which the last class would go at nine. Then you don't calm down for a couple hours. And then to have a baby that doesn't understand the nighttime schedule, it's like, I, like my, you know, I think children get up at seven or you got to get them off to school. That's so hard because I think my clock was always that before show business so it was like oh this is just right this is like what I fought against trying to do high school to, to get to bed at a decent hour and get up it's like every fiber in me is like no let me stay up to at least till two school should not start till noon but yeah <laughs> when you get to live with that, do that thank god I don't have children and I, I I respect you and love you for that because um all of my sisters have children and they, they put you into place because you're responsible for, for another human being. Thank God that that mother instinct pulls out and that right. you do not abandon them. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, children, you're on your own till noon. Mommy's got to sleep. Right. Right. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to backstage stories because it was funny when you talked about, are there guys interviewed for this? And then the conversations was from other guys. I don't know if they, their friends of yours that were like, Oh, those backstage stories, because we didn't, did say before we recorded that the girls the girls dressings were fun but in hello hollywood it was always the you could hear the boys the boys would come into the girls dressing room and there was always added this element of play and fun and talk to some other people about guys you know the cost like dressing up there'd be like drag night where they would get dressed up and entertain and like the show behind the show is so much fun we, so any um, stories you want to divulge we said this earlier i think you know when you think about it, the show lasts what two hours um, but you spend at least an hour before and an hour afterwards. So you spend as much time backstage as you do on stage. And so it is an important thing. And, and in both Vegas and 
Paris, the the dress rooms were small, so we were kind of like one next to the other. So yeah, you were part of an intimate group, and and we would dress up and we would make jokes and you know we would light farts and we would um, <laughs> next to feathers. Like, yeah, yeah, and we would dress up and we would just take the goof. I don't know that we had the 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 authorities to go into the girls' dressing room. Maybe we did, but they would kick us out because they would be like, ah, you know, like we saw their moves on stage, but we couldn't see them in the dressing room. I think it was <laughs> awful. You know, and the towel playing in the shower, but um it was it was fun. But I always thought that the girl that you got girls were having the same amount of fun. I think so. I think it was just the enter the entertainment when the especially like you said, the guys dress up and just like the, the girls had their fun. They definitely had a lot of fun. But I just remember the boys added another another layer of <laughs> of entertainment backstage. There was a number in Panache that Rich and Winston wanted to do a La Caja Fall number. And so they wanted to have six boys and six girls dressed alike. And I'm talking, you know, beautiful Marilyn Monroe costumes, full feather boa capes, sequin dresses, and the idea was to do the number and then we would uh, take off the cape, take off the dress and walk up and rip off the wig and rip off the bra and there would be six boys and six girls. Ha, 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 ha. Hmm. So he asked the boys who were willing to do drag to audition in drag. Well, most of the guys already had the shoes, already had the G-string, and they had already prepared the whole thing. I was like, oh, you know, Michelle, can I borrow your G-string? You know, Janet, <laughs> can I borrow your G-string? And it wasn't until I was on top of that stairs walking down as a girl that I was like, oh God, I really, this is not my thing. I didn't want to do it. And Rich took me aside afterwards and he said, you were the ugliest girl up there. <laughs> so and in the end, the number was canceled, sadly enough. But um, yeah, I was not. They were just trying it out to see yeah, if it was. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, that's where you go back to Don Arden, what a brilliant man he was. Um, I always got along well with him, but he could rip you a new uh, face if he didn't like what you were doing. But think of the responsibility, think of the machine, think of the organization of putting that all together. Uh, and I think ba basically they would even, for them, they would try things, they would put it out, they would show it to him and then he would say, yes or no, I don't like it, do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't want anything that's gonna bring that level down. So when you were done performing, did you stay in contact with dancers or go see the shows or did you just kind of leave that behind? Um, I don't, I didn't stay, no, because I kind of had a new life modeling and, 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 and doing industrial work. And so I got a new bunch of people and the people that I worked with at the Lido, they had a different time schedule, didn't they? So I could never see them because I was back to living days. Mm. Um, and I think that sometimes you work with people that doesn't necessarily mean that you're bonded for life. Um, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick the people you work with. So why would you think that you're going to have to be friends with people that you work with? Now, with Facebook and that sort of thing, I've reconnected with the people that I that I appreciate and that I love. And we don't see each other because they live on the other side of the world, but we do share what's happening with our life, and that's cool. 
you know, that's cool. Mm. And we talked about, I, I missed, the, they did one 10 years ago that I missed because I wasn't on Facebook. And I did go to this one. The reason that you talk about the Saturday, I was teaching ballroom class all day. So I missed the registration on Saturday. So I just came for the show. Um, and that was just overwhelming because, you know, there was 350 people and the ambiance was like so wonderful. And even the kids on stage, you know, when we left the stage, we were like, let me get out of here. Even the dancers, you know, they stuck around because they wanted to meet us. They wanted to be with us and the laughter and the joy. But my time with those people was two years in Paris and a year in um, in uh, Las Vegas. So really only the people that you know or the people that you dance with. Um, yeah. I too talked to a lady that was like 85 years old and she was like, oh my God, what is the show? There's no feathers. Uh, you know, well, she didn't know the same people I would did, but um, so you tend to, to gravitate to the people that you dance with and that's a short time. Yeah, it was so short. They, there was so much. I did the, the dance class that they offered for us. There's only 20. So we got to dance on that stage. And I did the photo shoot at the um, Eiffel good. Tower. I wanted to do all of it. And it just, it went by so fast. Um, I have a, uh, we're going to wind this up. And I have a question because I'm just picturing you as this farm, farm guy in North Dakota. And so like back then, if you could have pictured yourself with this life, you probably would have been a little bit overwhelmed. But is there anything that that farm upbringing and the way your family was in your community that has made you live differently as a performer and a person in Paris of coming from that very different upbringing that's your character that still shows up? Yes, most definitely. Number one is not to take yourself too seriously and that life is a joy ride and you should enjoy it as much as you can. When you start losing the people around you, every day is a gift and you should live it as that. Uh, now with COVID and everybody's bitching about the masks and I see all these Karen stories and I just want to scream because if you have your health, that's the, that's the best thing that you can have. And also I meet people who are kind of um, snobby because they're working at the leader, because they're a model and they think they're better than thou. And we were always taught to be humble and maybe you were talented, maybe you were good looking, that's the gift that you have, but it doesn't make you better or superior than anybody else. And I think the humbleness and the niceness um, has always stayed with me. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. nice to janitors. I'm nice to security people. I'm nice to the clerk at the grocery store because they're, they're working, you know? Yeah. They're like, oh gosh, you're so nice. Well, I think that you should be. That's sad that that's an anomaly. That's sad that that's not the regular. But it, I wonder, like, when you grow up in that kind of small town, there is a different, I think you said, the kindness, the work ethic. That's really, it doesn't leave you, which is great. Because some people want to leave their past behind and like, that doesn't affect me or it didn't matter. But the fact that you brought that with you and the way you even give it. I like the word kindness that you used because it is, it was very much of a community thing. If somebody was sick and couldn't harvest their crop, well, the other farmers would come and harvest it for them. If somebody's uh, car broke down or ran out of gas on the highway, my dad would, we would go pick them up. We would fill up the gas tank and we would invite them for coffee, you know? Oh my gosh. Uh, 
And I think maybe, and again, here's what my naiveness is. I think that's what's missing in America now is just the, the, the exchange with other human beings and everybody has the right to live and be happy and, um, and just be nice. People are not nice anymore. Well, I think that in Seattle, even so we have like a um, epidemic of niceness, but not kindness. Like people can smile at you and like, yeah, we'll do coffee. They don't mean it. Like they call it the Seattle freeze where sometimes people are nice, but not kind. Like I think when I think of Midwest, that kindness is more active than just smiling and smiling at people and turn around and like judging or whatever. Like there's something of, of that kindness is how it sounds like you're living different than just being nice. Cause nice keeps us to still not have to interact. How shallow that is to smile at somebody and then frown behind their back. I don't understand why you smile because it's obviously right. hypocritical. Right. And that's where I think that we have a lot of niceness without integrity or without kindness. So how you were explaining, like, yeah, that's what we actually really need right now. We need a little bit more up with people. We need some more farmers. We need some more empathy. And because we are in a place where it's all being exposed that we have not been nice or kind in a lot of the way we live. It's just not whether you're Christian or not, you're, you're brought up with values and morals. And I find it just amazing that all of these people, we won't say their names, but are doing all this with the Christian and the Lord in, in, in the name, but they're not emulating anything that Jesus would stand for or the lying, the cheating, the, the, the grabbing them by the pussy. I mean, just... And it's also, I think, funny being in another country where people are always asking me, how can this happen? How can this happen? This is America. And, and I think, I don't know, you mm. tell me, but I think that Americans are so over it and so frustrated and they don't, they've lost their guts. They've lost their will. They don't think anything they do can change something. So they kind of say, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. And that's sad mm. because they can pull the wool over your eyes and nobody says right. this is Wow. That is oh, a wonderful, but that is such a good place because it is like when I travel and people like I was over there um, when the election happened and people would look at me like, are you okay? And they kind of assume if you're traveling, you might have a little bit more open mind. Okay. And I felt like I had to apologize, but it was like, I think a lot of people understand to separate that America, how what America is, is not all Americans and not to, not to hold this all like that we're all doing that, but it, it was sad to travel to see the perception getting more and more is what the reality of America has been is just showing its ugly face in a different way. And they get that. They just don't understand how we could let that happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. We have the same, we have the same choice here. We have a guy, Macron and he was running against a horrible person named Le Pen. Whether you like Macron or not, you vote for him by default because you can't let this evil person. And that's the bottom line. And then you do the best that you can. And mm. you know, God bless Biden. I hope you can do it. But uh, we shouldn't talk politics here. This is about dancing. <laughs> <in the movie. laughs> well, and I think it is. Yeah, when you come out of that world of entertainment and you've been exposed more, you've been exposed exposed to more culture you've been exposed to more ways of life that I think it does broaden because I'd come kind of from more of a narrow mindset and I think that that being in those shows opened me up I'd never been around a gay person before I'd only yeah. known what I'd been told like through the church culture and so like wait I love these people I'd never been around <laughs> anybody of, around anyone of color before so you're like wait what have I been told 
So I do think there is a lot of beauty in, in doing those shows, that international quality of just being with people in situations that you never were before, backstage and dressing room, having conversations okay. with people okay. who think yeah. different. And uh, Yeah. I saw my first Black person when I was 21 years old. They, we didn't have Black people in North Dakota. So yeah. they just they went there. And then going back to picking up on what else you said about just experiencing other cultures. I mean, I've traveled extensively now and I'm in love with Italy as well. And mm. the way of living in Italy, they have it all figured out. It's about traveling. It's about food. It's about community. It's about architecture. Uh, France, I love. Um, even the Brits, even though sometimes they have brooms up their arses, you know, <laughs> they still are jovial. The Dutch are the best people. Um, mm. And Americans are too. I mean, Americans are too. The America that I grew up with and the America that I know is still out there, half of the country, are good, caring, kind people. Uh, it's the ones that are the 75,000, 75 million people that voted for you-know-who that that's scary to me. Yeah. Because I don't know how you can bring them back to reality. I think they're so brainwashed. They really believe the election was stolen. They really believe that what the California wildfires is a Jewish space laser. Have you heard that one? <laughs> uh, every day it's a new, like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a uh, rampant. And yeah. So I'm like kind of check in with people like, okay, we're all, we're mostly, we're still mostly grounded. Right. Yeah. Oh. So stay happy and stay dancing and listen to music and uh, stay positive because that's what's going to make everybody and yourself a better person. That is a perfect way to end that. This is, this is a great way to end. This has been wonderful, Mark. I loved hearing your, your, your story. I loved, yeah. I love the whole thing from farm to Paris. It's every story is so unique and yeah. I just, yeah. Cause you like, sometimes we don't even know where people are from your backstage. You just say America in general. You, yeah, you assume you kind of just assume America is California or New York. You don't realize that some kid from the, south dakota is here so i think it is it makes us a little bit more curious when we hear these interviews like oh i worked with you for a year and i really didn't know what your life was like before so i think that's part of the beauty when people will listen to their friends when they're interviewed and go huh i didn't know that about you so thank you 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 brought a lot of a lot of beauty to this interview and some humor and it was a delight thank you so much we will talk later about pictures and the carol burnett show that you must see. absolutely and i'm going to get my butt to paris as soon as we're let out of america i'll be over there (laughs) we'll go we'll go have coffee i'd love to (laughs) have a nice night thank you bye